Mitch, I thought you were going to say that you're going to miss my humility. I've got a message, by the way, on humility. I'm just waiting for a bigger crowd to preach it to. Some of you may be visiting and not understand our search process. Uh, this is uh, actually the way I believe we're handling it as a church is a normal process. This is a healthy process. Uh, it's, a good, it's a good, strong ending, but it's also a good transition for our church as it moves forward, not just seeking the Lord's will and guidance, but uh, the right individual to fit in this ministry and to continue to minister to you. Uh, I would certainly challenge you that you would continue to keep not the search committee in prayer, but keep the, our next pastor in prayer. Uh, God's got him prepared. He's out there. Part of That's part of the search process. But we're thankful for the leadership here at the church and uh, <clears throat> certainly for the grace of God that has been extended to this ministry and over these families here for all these years. Turn with me in your Bibles for our scripture readings in Romans chapter 9, please. Romans chapter 9. <clears throat> I'm just going to read the first six verses to give you a little flavor of the message that has yet to come. And, uh, and if you were, this is a, I'll, I'll wait for the introduction of the message just to tell you a little more about the passage. Chapter 9, verse 1. I'm going to read down to verse 6, or verse 5, I'm sorry. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory of the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Father, we thank you, even as we already mentioned, for the grace of God that has been extended to us, to us as individuals that has drawn us to you, the grace of God that has been extended to this ministry over the years, over time and time again, that this ministry is here by the grace of God, not by the will of man. We thank you for the grace of God that has protected families and continues to protect them. We thank you for your grace that as we embrace that unmerited favor, really not realizing our unworthiness to cause us to be thankful that you sent your son to die on the cross for our sins that we could have life. We pray, Father, as we look into the scriptures this morning and we examine the, Paul's heart, I pray that we examine our own hearts and our own liveliness, our own passions. In Christ's name we pray. I'm, I'm, I'm still tempted every time we dismiss junior church to go up there and see what they do because it's so exciting. <laughs> the children go up there. Uh, Paul, Paul's passion for people. Uh, you notice there's no text there, and I'll explain that in a minute. All right, we finished chapter 8. And now we're in chapter 9, 10, and 11. 9, 10, and 11, some consider to be a parenthesis. In other words, they're like an add-on or maybe material that doesn't pertain to the rest of the material. Uh, addendum or an introduction or kind of a bothersome thing to get into. The reason is 9, 10, and 11 is all about Israel. And so we've, 
in their mind, believe that, that believe that that is so, that we've covered all the doctrinal section of Romans, verses chapters 1 to 8. We've talked about the condemnation of man. We've talked about the, the justification of man. We've looked at the sanctification of man, and we've looked at the glorification of man. And so we finished chapter 8, so it would be so easy to now to get into the practical or the duty, which is, again, Paul is real typical in the writing of his epistles, and you'll find this true without an exception. And I talk about the epistles, I'm talking about Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. I'm not talking about Timothy and Titus. But when he writes his epistles, there's, he always starts with doctrine, and then he transitions right away after he's done with the doctrine into duty. Well, that's true here in Romans too, but when we come to chapter 9, 10, and 11, which deals with Israel, some, like I said, put a parenthesis that this is just a time out, let's talk about Israel for a little bit. I, I don't believe that. I believe this. I believe that chapters 1 through 11 is doctrine. I believe that the discussion uh, that takes place here in chapter 9, uh, 10, 11, is a continuing discussion of salvation that is using Israel as an example. And you'll see that in a minute as I, as I get to that. Uh, I believe it's a, continue, a continuation of the doctrinal discussion that raises it to another level. Uh, for instance, if you look at chapter 11, verse 33, all the depth and the riches both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. He's, he's taking this doctrinal discussion that has happened in the first eight chapters, using Israel as an example of that discussion to illustrate to us that discussion about the condemnation of man, about the justification of man, about the sanctification of man, about the glorification of man. And he's using Israel's example in here 9, 10, and 11, and he's raising our, this is our thinking to a whole new level of discussion and understanding and meaning. So it's not a parenthesis. It's a continuation of the discussion with us using a specific illustration, a specific example. In this case, it happens to be Israel. Now, an easy way to remember this, chapter 9. God's, don't, don't write it down, because I'm going to show it to you in a minute, but I just want to get your, your kind of thinking in this pattern here. Chapter 9 is God's past dealings with Israel. Chapter 10 is God's present dealing with Israel. And chapter 11 is God's future dealing with Israel. And I'll explain a little bit about each of those as we go along here. All right, so chapter 9. I'm giving you an overview of the three chapters. I, I am going someplace, but I want you to get a feel for this. Chapter 9 the focus, theme, emphasis is the sovereignty of God. Simple explanation of the sovereignty of God is that God rules and overrules in the affairs of men. He's in charge. You're not. He's God. You're not. The sovereignty of God. So chapter 9, strong emphasis on the sovereignty of God. And you will see in chapter 9, election. Probably one of the most divisive things in evangelical churches today is, to, is discussion, this whole discussion of election. 
you cannot avoid it. You cannot ignore it. You can't tear this chapter out of your Bible and say, it's, I don't believe in election. It's there, friends. It's there. The sovereignty of God. And so he talks about election. Uh, you know, uh, he says, like in verse 13, before they were born, in their innocence, he said, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Oh, my word. I don't pretend to understand that, but that's the sovereignty of God. We see in verse 15 where he says, I will have mercy on who I have mercy, and I will have compassion on who I have compassion. See, God's in charge. He's sovereign. In chapter 9, we see Israel's uh, fall. We see that these, this is God's past dealings with Israel. Alva J. McLean, in his commentary on Romans, put it this way. Listen. God has the right to reject Israel if he wants to. He has the right to choose one man and to reject another. It may not sound right. See, that doesn't sound right to me. It may not sound right. And to most people, it probably doesn't seem right. But neither how it sounds to men nor seems to their finite comprehension does not change the facts. So this is a, you see what I'm talking about? We're going to a whole new level of discussion about doctrine. And, and better men and women than us have discussed these things, have written books about them, and still disagreed. Sometimes using the same proof text. But it is here. So, if you're ready for that, then, and you're not confused yet, wait till you see chapter 10. What? Human responsibility? You just got done talking about the sovereignty of God on election, and now you're talking about human responsibility. There's moral responsibility to man. Rejection. Israel's fault. If Israel as a nation has been set aside, it's through no fault of God. The reason that God rejected Israel is because Israel first rejected the gospel. Look at chapter 10, verse 19. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I'm chapter 10, verse 19. I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. What he's talking about here is the Gentiles were coming to Christ. How is that possible? The Messiah is for the Jews. But to Israel he says, all day long I've stretched out my hands to you, to a disobedient and contrary people. See, Israel has rejected the Messiah. They had rejected the message. They rejected the gospel. Oh, by the way, chapter 10. Come on. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You, you know what? We don't know who God has chosen or not chosen. We're not here to be concerned about chapter 10, the elect. We just know it's true. But our mission in life, just like we were talking about in our Sunday school class this morning, Luke chapter 19, verse 10. What does it say? 
I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Christ said that. I came to seek and to save that which is lost. The enfleshment of God, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, came to say, I came to seek and to save that which is lost. You try to put those two things together. You got the sovereignty of God, and you got the moral responsibility of man. But they're both there, folks. You can't tear out chapter, because you don't like chapter 10, you can't tear it out and leave it out and say, well, we'll just deal with chapter 9. They're together. How does that work? I don't know. All I know is it's true. Well, then we come to chapter 11. The final purposes of God, reception. So if you, if you read through chapter 9 10, you might come to the conclusion is, you know what? God is done. Israel's out. There's no future. But that's where chapter 11 reinforces the fact there is a future. There is a future reception of Israel. Look at chapter 11, verse 26. Chapter 11, verse 26. And all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. What, What is that saying? This is a reference to the second coming of Jesus Christ after the tribulation, when Israel as a nation will turn to God, to the Messiah, and embrace him for salvation. This is yet future. This is the not yet. This hasn't come to pass yet, but it's coming. Israel has a future. And when he says his covenants are irrevocable, it simply means this. God, as a man of his word, or as a sovereign God, will fully carry out what he promised. He will be faithful to it because that's who he is. That's part of his nature. And if they didn't, this is important, if they didn't come true, if Israel did not come to Christ, if the promises that were given in the Old Testament towards Israel did not come to pass, then God would be a liar. Because remember in Genesis chapter 12 when he gave to Abraham the uh, Abrahamic covenant? It's what we call unconditional. In the, in the scriptures, there's conditional covenants like the law where he says, I will if you will. If you do this, I will do this. But the Abrahamic covenant, the Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, these were promises, these were covenants were established with different individuals from Israel and, and God simply said, I will. If God said, I will, and those promises are unconditional, then they must come to pass. God has not rejected Israel. This is only a temporary setback because of their unbelief. But there is a day coming when they will come as a nation returning to him. Right now, at the present, Paul as an example, at the present there are many Jews coming to know Christ as their Savior. But you know what? They have to come the same way that you and I do. See, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. 
They must repent and believe, just like you must. It doesn't matter, male or female, as we were talking this morning in Luke, uh, rich or poor, outcast or prestigious political figure, you all must come the same way. Repent and believe. So God has a plan. Paul chooses to draw back the curtain in chapter 11 and show how God, even in the things which appear to be mysterious, is going to work out his holy and divine purpose to Israel in the end. Just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not true. That's the whole point of the scripture. It is true. So that's just a broad overview of these three chapters. But in in studying that, there's one thing that just, through the Spirit of God or just general interest, it just grabbed me. And that's at the beginning of each chapter. Paul makes a personal statement of his concern for the people of Israel. And the point is this, before Paul gave him his theology about his past, present, and future dealings with Israel, he shared his heart. And there's a saying, you've heard this before, people don't care how much you know until they know you care. And so Paul is going to share with them his heart, and in sharing his heart, then he'll get into the theology later. So what I'm going to do this morning, I just want to look at the beginning of each chapter, those statements that Paul makes. It it may seem a little confusing to you, but stay with me. I I do have a a rhyme to my reason here as we go along. So let's look at chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. As he begins. Chapter 9, verses 1 to 3. I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience also bearing the witness in the Holy Spirit. First of all, in chapter 9, verse 1 to 3, Paul's love for Israel. He's expressing his love. There's a solemn oath, I tell you the truth. There's a burdened heart and a self-sacrificing wish. First of all, a solemn oath. Why did he, why did he say, I I tell the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. Why did he have to say that? His honesty. He proclaims it. He tries to reinforce it. Because to the Jews, Paul was a traitor. He was a Judas. He had been commissioned by the Sanhedrin to root out, exterminate Christians. And then marvelously say on the road to Damascus, He was confronted by Christ, and he became a persecutor of Christians to a preacher of Christ. And they knew that. He was was hated by the Jews. In fact, in Acts chapter 23, it records for us one of his visits to Jerusalem that more than 40 zealous Jews bound themselves with an oath that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Now God, in his gracious, spared his life then. But that, that was not unusual. Uh, his beatings. He was stoned and left for dead once. His, his other experiences they had from the persecution, the 
of, of the Jews themselves. Paul abandoned his mission to present Christ. Oh, by the way, you notice when he went into New City where he went first? He always went to the synagogue first. Even though he knew his life may be in danger. Why was that? Because he loved his brethren. He loved his people. He was anxious for them. I was thinking of uh, Mitch's report and as a search committee is about, and I came across this illustration of choosing the right minister. And I thought I'd share it with you. One of the toughest tasks a church faces is choosing a good minister. There's many, there's many challenges that a church faces, but that's one of the most difficult. A member of an official board undergoing this painful process finally lost patience. He just witnessed the pastoral relations committee reject applicant after applicant for some minor fault, real or imagined. It was time for a bit of soul searching on the part of the committee, so he stood up and read his letter per, per purporting to be from another applicant. By the way, that's not true of our search committee. Our search committee is working very well together. I'm so appreciative of those men and, and their prayers and prayerfulness and their preparation for this search to identify the man that God has for us. Anyway, the applicant's letter read this way. Gentlemen, understanding your pulpit is vacant, I should like to apply for the position. I have many qualifications. I'm a preacher with, such, with much success and also has some successes as a writer. Some say I'm a good organizer. I've been a leader most places I've been. I'm over 50 years of age and have never preached in one place for more than three years. In some places I have left town after my work caused riots and disturbances. I must admit I have been in jail three or four times, but not because of any real, worse, no, any real wrongdoing. My health's not too good either, by the way, though I still accomplish a great deal. The churches I have preached in have been small, though located in several large cities. I've not gotten along well with religious leaders in the towns where I've preached. In fact, some have threatened me and even attacked me physically. I'm not too good at keeping records. I have been known to forget who I baptized. However, if you can use me, I'll promise to do my best for you. The board member turned to the committee and said, Well, what do you think? Should we call him? The good church folks were appalled. Consider a sickly, troublemaking, absent-minded ex-jailbird. What's the board member crazy? Who signed the application? Who had such colossal nerve? The board member eyed them all keenly before he replied, it signed the Apostle Paul. The perfect pastor. I added that. So, his honesty. Now let's move on to the verse. And then he calls these witnesses. The witnesses to verify I am telling the truth. The first witness he calls, of course, is Christ. One author put it this way. Paul was calling his Lord and Savior as an indisputable witness. His omniscience, righteousness, sovereign, gracious Lord, who perfectly knew Paul's heart and motives, would affirm the truthfulness of the apostles' love for his fellow Jews. The first witness he called was Christ. The second witness he called was his conscience. That, in, that instinctive uh, sense of right and wrong. We talked about this in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 15. 
about our conscience. It's, we are born with an instinctive sense of right and wrong that produces guilt when violated. He's basically what he's saying, my conscience is clear. I call to attention my conscience also bearing witness to the fact I'm telling you the truth. See, a conscience can be deceived. It can be defiled in Titus 1.5. A conscience can be seared in 1 Timothy 4, 1 and 2. It can be covered over as with a scar or calluses that to be insensitive to sin, to mute its voice. A conscience can be rejected or ignored in 1 Timothy 1.19. Paul is saying, my conscience is clear. I am telling you the truth. The third witness he calls there, as you see in the verse, is the Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul's not just saying my conscience is clear, but the Holy Spirit will bear witness to the fact that I am under the controlling influence. My conscience is under the controlling influence of the Holy Spirit. I telling you the truth. I am not lying. I call on witnesses of Christ, my conscience, and the Holy Spirit. See, he had a solemn oath. Now, verse 2. He had a burdened heart. Verse 2 says, That I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. I just want to look at two things. Great sorrow and continued grief. Great sorrow is used by a person who is mourning over the death of a loved one. If you've ever experienced that, you will someday. But to mourn over the death of a loved one, that great sorrow, that heaviness of heart, that intense heartache, that gloom and dejection, and it seems like it never ends. And then when it does end, something you'll say something or you'll hear a song or you'll think, I wish I could talk to the day, and it floods back over you, that deep sorrow. He says that I have great sorrow, continued grief in my heart. That's unceasing, intense pain. It's constant agony, overbearing misery. I am weighted. It's like I have the weight of the world on my shoulders for you. He not only has a solemn oath and a burdened heart, but in verse 3, he is a self-sacrificing wish. He says, for I could wish. The point there is not, this is not a literally expressing this wish. It's in the perfect tense. Since he just taught that nothing can separate us from the love of God, this is impossible. But if I could wish. He would entertain such a wish, even though it could not be possibly granted. It's very similar to what repeated by Moses in his passion for Israel. They, he was on the mount getting the law. There was a great noise down below, and the children of Israel had gotten together, melted gold together, and, they, and Aaron had formed a golden calf. And in God, in all that happened there, in his judgment of them, he said, This is what I'm going to do, Moses. I'm going to strike them dead and start over with you. And Moses said, Moses went before God after the children of Israel made the golden calf He committed and committed acts of idolatry at the very foot of Mount Sinai. And then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin. They've made a God of gold for themselves, but now if you will forgive their sin, and if not, Please blot me out from your book which you have written. Take my life. In other words, extend grace to them. Take me, that they could live. That's what Paul is saying. He has a self-sacrificing wish. 
for I could wish that I myself were accursed. The Greek word there is anathema, condemned to utter destruction. Dedicated for destruction, eternal damnation, divine judgment of God. That's what he's saying. I would be accursed. I would rather be damned for eternity so that my brethren could come to Christ. He had a self-sacrificing wish. John 15, verse 13, Christ in his teaching said this, Greater love has no man than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. Listen, I ask you this. Who would you be willing to die for? I mean, really. Who would you be willing to die for? Would you be willing to die and go to hell, eternal damnation, so your grandchildren could come to Christ? Would you really do that? See, that's what Paul's saying. I would rather be accursed than my brethren would come to Christ. Luther comments on this verse, he says, It seems incredible that a man would desire to be damned in order that the damned might be saved. <laughs> it's incredible that a man would desire to be damned in order that the damned might be saved. He had a self-sacrificing wish. So Paul's love for Israel. Secondly, I want to notice here now, let's go to chapter 10. Verse 1. We see his love for Israel. Now let's look at his passion. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. Three characteristics, I believe, or stand out or come out, I, I think, at least to me, as Paul as the sower of the gospel seed. First of all, his inward pleasure, in my heart's desire. That word desire speaks of passion, it speaks of pleasure, it speaks of satisfaction, it speaks of perseverance, it speaks of unconditional commitment. That, that inner perseverance that will enter the jaws of death, barely escape, only to do it again tomorrow. That's the passion, the, the perseverance. Paul's not distracted by his passion for the lost and not distracted from his passion for the lost and specifically for the salvation of Israel. This is his inward pleasure. This is his inward perseverance. This is his unconditional commitment to the lost. Secondly, we'll see there his upward pleading and prayer to God. This word praying is a word desis. It is one of the strongest words used in scripture it means to beg in fact in luke chapter 5 verse 12 the same root word is used when a leper saw jesus he fell at his face and he begged to be made clean it says and a man full of leprosy saw jesus and fell on his face and implored or begged him saying lord if you are willing you can make me clean his upward pleading in prayer to god the word for praying. Which brings us then to another paradox. If God is sovereign, and he is, why pray? Right? 
I'm going to give you several reasons, but let me give you two right off the top. First of all, we're commanded to pray. Secondly, and this is really interesting, Christ prayed. Remember his prayer in the garden? He said, Lord, I pray that this cup will pass pass from me. In other words, his his rejection and separation from God was just overwhelming to him. He didn't want to have to face that on the cross for your sin and my sin if it's your will. Well, he knew what God's will was, but yet he prayed that. So we see the example of Christ. We learn from 8, 29 to 30 in our preliminary overview of chapter 9, verse 11, about God's sovereign election, Israel's unbelief. So why do we pray? We're to pray without ceasing. We see the example of Christ himself. But let me add three more reasons why we need to pray for unbelievers. Because God is sovereign. Just stay with me. Because we need to pray for unbelievers because God is sovereign. The only kind of God worth praying to is a God who is sovereign. He rules and overrules the affairs of men. Pray to any other kind of God. It's useless because that God cannot really do anything about it. He is powerless. True? So why would you waste your time? Listen, the only kind of God who can answer prayer is a sovereign God. If he cannot rule and overrule in the affairs of men, we might as well live by fate and forget about faith. Even a a liberal theologian, when driven to his knees, will pray that God heal his child from certain death. Why? Because he knows that God the God worth praying to is sovereign over disease and even death. So why pray? Because God is sovereign. He is in charge. Second reason. And and this is just, this is, it makes so much sense. Because God's the only one who saves. (laughs) Why pray for the unsaved? Because he's the only one who saves. You cannot save anybody. You can plant seed. You can beg and implore them to come to Christ. You may have the opportunity to actually lead them to Christ and experience them praying and and repenting and asking God to forgive them and believing on him as their Savior. But you aren't the one who saves. God is the one who saves. Those that are sharing their faith with unbelievers, this is reassuring. God is the one who does the work. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 6 we do the planting and the watering, but God gives the increase. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up the last day. Should you be prepared to share your faith? Well, of course you can. And then the simplest way to share your faith is just share your testimony. You don't have to, you don't have to sit down and explain chapter 9, 10, and 11 to give somebody the gospel. You don't have to answer all those, those things. One of the wonderful things about the way of the master uses a plan for sharing the gospel. You allow the person to answer, and then you listen very politely, and then you come back to the same question you asked before. Do you know where you would go if you died right now? Yeah, but I would like to talk about this mystical experience I've had 
And then they go on about this. And you listen. It may take a five minutes for them to explain it to you. And then you follow up and say, by the way, uh, I hear what you're saying, but I was just wondering. Do you know where you would be if you died right now? How do you know? You don't have to have all the answers. You just have to have Christ. And Paul here is not praying for the perfect answer. He's praying to God who has the answers. He's praying specifically that God will save his kinsmen in the flesh. Why? Because only because he knows only God is sovereign and only God can save. Let me give you a third reason why we should pray. Because God has chosen us, I'm sorry, that's right, God has chosen uh, to use us in his plan of salvation. God has chosen us or to use us in his plan of salvation. Romans 10, verse 13 and 14, in this chapter. Great verses. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? Who's that? That's you. That's me. God has chosen to use us in his plan of salvation. That's why we should pray. God has ordained the ends, but God has also ordained the means. We are his means to the unbeliever's end. Nowhere does the scripture give us the responsibility to figure out whom God has chosen. But God has given us the responsibility to proclaim saving, saving gospel to every person who will hear while begging and pleading with God, praying that he will save him or her. Third thing, not only his inward pleasure, his upward pleading, but his outward purpose. For Israel, that they may be saved. In Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. The word picture there is the horizon. What dominated Paul's horizon? The gospel. What consumed him? The gospel. Of proclaiming that redemptive message of Jesus Christ by faith in Christ. To proclaim the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has freed you from your everlasting damnation and punishment in hell if you would put your faith or repent and believe. Redemption defined Paul's relationships with people. Redemption defined Paul's missions to people. Redemption defined Paul's prayers for people. And redemption defined Paul's purpose that people might be saved. It consumed him, his outward purpose for Israel, that they may be saved. Now turn to chapter 11. Paul's expectations for Israel. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. It reminds me of in chapter 6, when Paul was saying, 
asking two questions, and he, he ended them by, or answered them by saying, God forbid, God forbid, certainly not. That's, that's so out of realm of even God's thinking. There are some, and there are still some, who teach that Israel rejected Christ, that God has rejected Israel. His covenant promises are canceled. Any future plans for Israel are null and void. Paul proceeds to correct that error by presenting himself as an example that God is not through with Israel. Israel, Israel's failure is not final because God is faithful and he cannot deny himself. Those promises that he delivered in the Old Testament, those unconditional promises, will, are yet to be fulfilled. That day is coming. In Holman New Testament commentary on Romans is this story. Is God done with Israel? Frederick the Great was the king of Prussia, a territory which is now modern-day Germany and Poland. He ruled from 1740 to 1786. Voltaire, the French philosopher and atheist, heavily influenced Frederick. As a result, he became skeptical of Christianity and the the reliability of the Bible. He said to his chaplain, If your Bible is really true, it ought to be capable of very easy proof. If it is indeed from God, you should be able to demonstrate the facts simply without complicated arguments. Give me proof for the inspiration of the Word of God in one word. One word to prove the reliability of the Bible. If you were asked that question, what one word would you choose to prove the reliability of Scripture and consequently the reliability of God, of love, of sin, of grace, of guilt, of conscience? After a moment or two of thought, the chaplain thought of one word that all the world could see as remarkable proof that God was reliable in his word as well. What was that one word? Your majesty, he replied, I can give you the proof you asked for in one word. Amazed, the king asked, what is this magic word that carries such a weight of proof? The chaplain answered, Israel. Frederick the Great responded only with silence. Just let that sink in for a moment. Israel is the proof or the reliability of the scripture and the author of the scripture? What nation has lasted 4,000 years? We know when, when the nation began, why it began, and by whom it began. We have detailed written records of their ancient and modern history. Her language remains the same, as well as her religion, her traditions, her homeland, and her bloodline. She still follows the original documents that outlined her faith, the Torah, the Old Testament law. Surely, for a nation to exist for so many centuries, it must have been pampered and protected by the world, right? That is, however, what makes the survival of Israel even more miraculous and divinely overshadowed. No nation has been so robbed, so deported, so murdered, and so hated. 722 B.C., they were decimated by Assyrians. 
586 B.C. The capital, Jerusalem, was destroyed by the Babylonians. 538 to 432 B.C., groups of exiles returned like homing birds to the rebuild Jerusalem. A.D. 70, the nation was destroyed. Jerusalem raised to the ground. The population fled. The next 1,800 years, they were scattered throughout Europe and Asia, while Jerusalem and the homeland were the scene of hundreds of years of conflict. It was ruled off and on by Turks, Muslims, and Western powers. 1940, the Holocaust killed millions of these scattered Jews living in Eastern Europe and Russia. 1948, the Zionist movement reestablished Israel as a nation. 1967, they regained control of Jerusalem except for the Temple Mount. Every day in the news we hear reports about what nation? Israel. Even without the modern developments, however, the King of Prussia had, could not, I'm sorry, had to agree. Israel was a miraculous proof of God's reliability in keeping his word. Where are the Assyrians? Where are the Perizzites? Where are the Hittites? Where are the Malachites? Where are the Jebusites? And where is Israel? No other nation has survived 4,000 years of wars, destruction, deportation, genocide, persecution, the repeated destruction and rebuilding of the capital city. Why has Israel survived? Because God said it would. It has a future. Jeremiah 31, 37 says, If the heavens above can be measured, the foundations of the earth be searched out below, will I cast off all the offspring of Israel? In other words, it's simply saying this. Until the universe is mapped, and they're, they're discovering more galaxies all the time, until the universe can be mapped and the center of the earth is explored, Israel will not cease to be a nation. See, it has a future. It has a future. Just as Paul was trying to tell them in chapter 11. Let me just end with this. This is the takeaway or just a lesson we can learn from this. In chapter 9, verses 1 to 3, what's the question? What would you be willing to give up in order for the lost to come to Christ? John 15, 13, greater love, has no, greater love has no one greater than this than to lay down his life for his friends. Second challenge, these are the three keys to opening the heart of the unbeliever. What's the three rules of real estate? You know them. Location, Location and location. Here's the three keys to opening the heart of an unbeliever. Pray passionately for the lost. You pray passionately for the lost. When is the last time you prayed passionately for the lost? When's the last time that you had gave out the gospel? When's the last time that you were able to lead someone to Christ? Would it go back to the fact you haven't prayed passionately for the lost? He persevered. It was unconditional. He was absolutely committed. Pray passionately for the lost. 
The Lord may be bringing someone to your mind even now. Are you praying passionately that they would come to Christ? To pray passionately for the lost. And last, never underestimate the power of God's grace. Should have he abandoned Israel? Did Israel deserve to be abandoned? Absolutely. But yet in his grace, he extends himself again because he's not done yet with Israel. Israel is not beyond the reach of God's grace. Neither are you. Did Israel deserve God's grace? No. Did Paul, the hunter of Christians, deserve God's grace? No. Do you or I deserve the light of God's grace? No. None of us deserve God's grace. If we did, as Paul wrote in chapter 11, verse 6, grace would not be grace. See, grace is undeserved favor, and only the undeserving get it. I'm presenting the word of God to you. I'm presenting to you God's grace. Is there someone here this morning that doesn't know Christ as their personal Savior? Embrace God's grace. You don't deserve it any more than I do. If you're here this morning, you're struggling with sin. You've fallen back. God's grace calls you. God's grace pleads with you to come back in fellowship with him. You know Christ, but you're not walking with Christ today. He's calling you back. Let's all stand together. Father, we pray as we come to you this morning, we, we cannot help but be overwhelmed by your grace that you not only extended and continue to extend to Israel, but you continue to extend to us as a people, as believers, as a church. If you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, but you want to know him, just come up to me after the service. And if you're a lady, I'll have a lady show you from the gospel, the word of God, how to be saved. If you're a man, I'll have a man talk to you about your salvation. If you want somebody just to pray with you, just grab someone near you or by you, or you can, you can come and talk to me. God's not done yet. He's not done with Faith Bible Church. He's not done with you any more than he's done with Israel. Father, thank you that you are sovereign. Thank you that you have placed upon us the privilege and the responsibility of sharing the gospel message. Thank you for intervening in our shortcomings and our failures. And above all, Lord, thank you for your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together. Let's